We must constantly look at things in a different way. The Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast was created by two physical therapists out of the desire to learn more about the different educational roles in physical therapy and healthcare and how healthcare education works by talking with educational leaders and people with different perspectives within physical therapy and across interdisciplinary lines on how education can be improved to disrupt the status quo of healthcare education. This is our journey and thanks for listening. Are you a third-year physical therapy student that excels on tests when you have study guides, checklists, and deadlines? With all of the information available about how to prepare for the NPTE, it's easy to get disorganized and not feel prepared going into the big day. NPTE Prep Success is an online course that provides PT students easy-to-use study guides and step-by-step guidance through the NPTE preparation. To learn more, visit kylericeprep.com. Thank you again all for your continued support, and now for the show. Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast. My name is Brandon Pollan, and of course, I am joined, as always, by one of my co-hosts, F. Scott Field. Our other co-host, Stephanie Wyrock, unfortunately, was not able to join us today. However, for today's episode, we have a very special guest from across the border, and with that, we have the one and only Dr. Greg Lehman. For those of you who don't know Greg Lehman, he is a physiotherapist and a chiropractor, a strength and conditioning specialist, and an exercise biomechanics expert who teaches internationally with reconciling biomechanics with pain science and running resiliency. And he also will be coming to Midlothian, Virginia, to the Virginia Center for Spine and Sports Therapy, where he will be teaching his class reconciling biomechanics with pain science course through ICC seminars, which will be Saturday, February 2nd and Sunday, February 3rd, 2019. So those who are interested in attending, feel free to check out that note in our show notes. So Greg, just in general, I know your background is pretty extensive and all that what you've done and such. Do you think that you could kind of give our audience some background about kind of who you are and about your journey to kind of led to that led to kind of where you're at today? Sure. I went to chiropractic college first. I just had some reservations. So that's why I did uh, a master's first before I went there. And then even in Cairo college, I've always been relatively uh, skeptical about the way we, we teach things and what's uh, important. So that's why I just stayed in research. Uh, even when I was a clinician, meaning reading a lot and trying to find uh, like the most important thing that we can do as a clinician or to treat our patients. So I've always had doubts. So it's, it's funny, people talk about, um, you know, going through a revelation, um, a revolution in their clinical practice with the biopsychosocial model. Uh, but to me, I was quite lucky because when I started, I had all of those things already debunked like 20 years ago. I worked with two really good uh, chiropractors uh, and at the University of Waterloo, a lot of good thinkers, and they were just tearing apart most of the things that people are challenging now in the school school system. So I never had to go through like a personal crisis, (laughs) you know, when you're treating people and and people are challenging you and saying what you're doing is false. I never had to do that because I was kind of like disabused of those ideas when I was quite young, which is quite good because it just makes treating people simpler. Yeah, it definitely seems like that's definitely less of a struggle early on for sure. And, you know, Greg, I'm kind of curious with you kind of going through both avenues and being that going through both chiropractic and physiotherapy education, I'm just really kind of curious in terms of what are some of the big similarities and differences that you notice between both programs? 
So I can only speak to the Canadian system, right? So I went to the Canadian Memorial Chiropractic College and they were, uh, they're good part of, they were very good at making us take critical thinking skills that would surprise people. And they, they were very good at challenging the dogma of what we did. We weren't taught subluxations except as a historical model. We, we were taught motion palpation, you know, to pivot, not pivots and pans, we didn't call it that, but we were taught that, but we are also taught that this doesn't have a lot of validity. We were taught how to try to be specific with same manipulation, but we were also taught the science showing that you couldn't be specific. So it was very good in, in that area. Whereas physio school, they didn't have that critical thinking hat on and they were teaching all of the old stuff. Uh, it, it, was, it was kind of shocking. I always tell the story. But what they did really well was it was only a two-year program and they distilled what you, just what you needed to know and that's all that they taught you. So they had like good, good planning. Like they, they, they weren't, this is more opposed to Cairo College. Where Cairo College just tried to beat the hell out of you. And we would have four to six anatomy and neuroanatomy courses and neuroscience courses. And you didn't need these things. Whereas physio school is like, you know, two months of an anatomy course. And that's all that they said that, that you needed. So they're, they're a bit more efficient, I would say. Those are the differences between the two. Wow. But, but then I think a good clinician is a good clinician. It doesn't matter if they're a chiro or a physio. Right, right. Yeah. Yeah, that's a good juxtaposition there, Greg. I think uh, it's it's interesting to see the difference in programs, which is why we love having a bunch of different clinicians from different fields, even on the on the show. But let's jump right into the meat of this episode here. And I realize that this next question could be a whole episode in itself. But what's been learned over the past 10, 20 years or so in research? Do you think you could maybe tell our listeners what exactly is pain and how is it classified? I like Mosley's, like Larma Mosley's twist on things. You know, where pain is an experience, you know, it's a perception by the person, it's response to a threat is the idea. But then he talks about it's meant to motivate an action. And so the way Mosley spin it, spins it is that it's meant to protect you. So now we've, we've become more optimistic. You know, it's, it's, it's a good thing that we, we overdo sometimes. And then he says, well, how do we determine that it's a threat and that we need this protection. And he, what he sort of argues more is it's not just sensory information, you know, nociception, whatever's going on in the tissue. It's all of the factors in your life, you know, somatosensory beliefs, emotions, you know, cognitions, all of these other things, which is, which is nice to expand it. Uh, and so to me, I, I like those definitions that are kind of actionable. They, they, they kind of tell you, what you can work on uh, and the patient gets to tell you because it's an experience of the, of the person in front of you. So the patient also tells you what's important to them. And then you get to start adding things with your questions. Like me, it's your response to the threat, you know, so you can, you can change your response as well as you can change, you know, those threats perhaps. And that's why I use terms like calm shit down and build shit back up. And it's just, it's sort of the same idea. Or Mosley and Butler will say, um, you know, what's the danger in you? So those are the things that are prompting you to feel like you need to protect yourself. And what's the safety in you? They're sims. So what, what's making you resilient? What's making you robust? What are the good things that you can work on? So I like definitions like that that are are optimistic and actionable. Yeah, I couldn't agree more, Greg. And I think maybe a little bit of Adrian Lowe sprinkled in on top, too. Um, 
I, I, I yeah, think, I just don't know. I don't know his stuff as well, but I, I don't doubt that he would be positive in there as well. Yeah. Yeah. And he definitely breaks it down in a very simplistic way that the patient can understand, which I love. Yeah. Not just the patients, me. <laughs> right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> like, I, I need it dumbed like, down just they as can much get as they confusing do. And we have these very smart academics. They can read a whole paper. And you're like, what the hell was that? How does that change anything that I do? I don't doubt that it was accurate and it was intelligent, but I couldn't care about it. Right. It's not going to change anything. And the patients don't necessarily care either. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Greg, realizing that, you know, there's been a lot of evidence regarding the neuroscience of pain expectations, um, you know, for our listeners who are not aware, what would you say are some of the biggest and most clinical relevant revelations we've had in the last few years regarding pain? To be honest, I don't think there's anything in the last few years. I think all of this stuff is in the last 30. It's, it's a really, I would challenge all of like your, your listeners to go look at old research papers and you'll be surprised that nothing is really new in the past 10. Everyone says this revolution in the past 10, I would say the past 20 or 30. We knew about the biopsychosocial model ages ago. We knew about pain not being related to damage at least 25 to 30 years ago. I remember reading a paper in 1996 about these surgeons followed people with disc herniations, pressing on the nerve root. They didn't do surgery. Uh, the, the, there's only like seven or 10 people in the study. They all recovered in three to six months. They went back and did the MRIs. The disc herniations were still there. So none of that stuff is new. In 97, I wrote a paper on central sensitization and uh, and what else was it on? Like phantom limb pain, right? So what's that? 21 years ago. And I would use research papers that were five years old at the time. So none of these stories, nothing is really dramatically new in the past uh, uh, few years. So that's sort of my take on this. We're, we're just slow in the uptake. We've reached a point where we have enough famous clinicians and researchers talking about it, where now now that's what's new. It's, it's, it's people are ready to accept it and, tr and try to figure out what to do with it. That might be what's new. Yeah, because I was just about to say that window that's debatable between when evidence is actually published and when it's actually implemented in practice, because um, it definitely seems like it's been around for a while. It's just now, like you said, it's just kind of all the big hitters are it's becoming more widely accepted and more widely adopted for sure. And, you know, something that I'm really curious about, Greg, is something that at least that I was taught as I was going through PT school, and this is what I've learned too at that time, was that Posture is something that, that is very heavily blamed for a cause of pain. And, you know, the more we've learned about it, the more we realize that posture is probably nowhere near as big a contributor that was originally thought. So and I'm kind of curious here, what in your experience, what does the evidence say about posture as it relates to musculoskeletal pain and kind of what your thoughts are on posture in general? It gets a little tough because you'd have to like define posture under what context, but if you're just talking about like uh, standing upright static posture or your seated posture while you're at, at work, you know, like if we kept it in, in that area, you know, under those low load conditions, it doesn't seem well related to pain. Meaning if someone is tilted or their head is um, forward, that is not an independent risk factor for someone to like increase their likelihood of pain. Every now and then you'll see a cross-sectional study where two groups have neck pain or one group has neck pain uh, and the other group doesn't. And you might see a slight increase in forward head posture. But when you look at it, it's like two degrees, like it's so tiny and there's a huge overlap. So it doesn't seem to be that big of a deal and something really to worry about. 
I think it's as simple as if it hurts when your head is forward, then maybe for a little bit, you don't do that. You know, we, we always solve pain movement problems on our own all the time. And, and one of the arguments is if we tell people like you go into an office and you say, you guys have to be sitting up straight, your head needs to be in this position, your back needs to be here. I think there is a subset of people where you mess them up. You know, I don't think it's a large enough group where you'll find it statistical in a study, but it could be five or 10% of people where it's like you don't give them permission to slouch. You don't give them permission just to solve their pain problem with their normal movement solutions because they think that there's some right way to sit or stand. And I don't think that's, that's supported at all, that there is one right way. I think we should be, that's why I use the term movement optimist. Just sit however you like. We can adapt to these wonderful positions. It's no big deal. Yeah, no, for sure. And something that I've heard that's kind of always stuck with me since is that, you know, posture is not really a problem unless it's a problem. Yeah, it wouldn't lead you to think that there's an ideal way to sit or stand. Like you can get just as much pain sitting stiff and, and upright all day long as you could slouching, right? There's, there's, there's no one right way to do it to me. And then I think the bigger thing that's more pernicious is this thought. This is about the biomechanics. Well, if you sit all day, your hip flexors will get short, right? And then when you go to squat or run, you'll end up with a problem. And, and those are the, these ideas, or like it'll turn your glutes off, which they're out there. And it's, it's surprising how little research there is and how, biological, how little biological plausibility there is behind those concepts. Because just because you're sitting eight hours a day, you're actually not in a lot of hip flexion if you look at how people sit. But you're also getting up. And we know... Like I would, my joke years ago is I want to be tied up like David Blaine and just see what happens to my range of motion, you know, after 23 and a half hours. But I, I mean, you, you, if you're sleeping on your stomach, no one gets worried about you getting extra hip extension. You know, it's so, it's so odd. Like, like we can sleep all day in that position. We're not concerned about it. Or if you're sitting all day long, no one gets worried that you're going to have great hip flexion. It's going to make your squatting better. I, don't, I think we have these ideas about posture and positions and biomechanics that's fully unsupported that cause some problems too. Yeah, those are some good points, Greg. So, Thanks. you know, with, <laughs> with one of your classes being called Reconciling Biomechanics with Pain Science, how do you like to go about balancing biomechanics with pain science when you're working with your patients? Uh, it, it, again, it always depends on their goals, right? If their uh, goals are performance, then I do get more concerned about biomechanics. And often I'm not the right person to see. Like I might, they might need to go see a specific strength coach or performance coach in that area. Um, and then there's also a point of meeting the person where they are at. If, if they're adamantly sure that it's their posture and it's because they're weak that they have pain, uh, I don't always have to address those beliefs immediately. You know, I, I, I can still give them a positive rehab program uh that can help them out and and you know an exercise or something like that uh without saying oh god don't worry about your posture because sometimes you know people will push back when you say those things and they're really wedded to those beliefs so the the point of the reconciling is there's still a lot of good in biomechanics or in mechanical treatments it's not all talking to your patients to me, the mechanical aspects of treatment are very important and they work together with the psychosocial aspects. That's the idea. It's just figuring out the best way to use the mechanical aspects of treatment. That's the challenge. 
Right. And kind of gathering, does someone need more of one than the other and kind of what's that balance? And then something that I'm also kind of really curious about that something that at least I've kind of struggled with, at least initially on is, you know, kind of the concepts behind when you have certain people that have maybe a certain level of sensitivity within the nervous system is kind of that optimal dosage of intervention, you know, and that, cause I find that sometimes that's really hard to initially gauge and you have to go through a couple sessions to kind of figure out and based on response, what's the right level for some things. Kind of Greg, what are your thoughts and overall and just how you determine just an overall thoughts and rules on dosing for perhaps those newer clinicians or clinicians out there that are having the same issue as that? It's the hardest thing, right? It's uh, because especially when you're treating pain, or like a tendinopathy or something, because we don't know what biomotor ability we're trying to change to help someone with pain. If we're talking strength, power, hypertrophy, it's way easier to dose, right? But if you give someone an exercise program for their knee, let's say they have knee pain, and you think it responds to exercise, and you want to give them exercises for their hip and their knee and, and all that stuff together, right? What's the optimal dose is tough because you don't know, are they going to get out of pain because they got stronger? Are they going to get out of pain because you encourage them to move on a regular basis and movement is an analgesic? Are they going to get out of pain because actually you taught them that to poke a little bit into pain uh, and by doing that, they got less worried about their knee because it didn't flare up later. So then they started doing other activities in their life that they loved. You know, we, we don't, that, this is, so this is the challenge. You don't know exactly why you're giving an exercise. <laughs> and so it's hard to choose the dosage. So it, um, what, what I think you have to decide is why are you giving the exercise? And then you look at the dosing literature for there. Does that make sense? So it yeah. depends on the goal of the exercise. So if it's purely for strength and power, then you follow the classic strength and conditioning principles, you know, two to four sets you can probably do two to four times a week. The most important, the exercise probably doesn't matter as much. It's more important that they do something that they're going to keep doing. If it's like habituation where you want to get them or they're afraid of doing emotion and you want to get them comfortable doing something, then I go like high frequency because your goal isn't to get stronger. It's to like change their habit or like change their fear. And to me, that's like high frequency stuff. Or if you're, if you're doing an exercise because it's symptom modifying, like you're, you're having them move differently and you're getting confident and moving again, that's like a high frequency one because it's more about learning. It's like you want to think, why are you giving that exercise, you know, and, and, and what your ultimate goal is. And then, then you work backwards and say, okay, what's, what's, what's the best dosage for that? Right. And then kind of getting into this next one here is I realize this kind of does, again, depend on the reason why you're giving it. But for the newer clinician, perhaps, what are some guidelines or some kind of rules to follow in terms of kind of a good and expected normal response to intervention? And kind of when's the time to go, well, okay, maybe that was not normal. Let me modify it a little bit so that that's a better response. Yeah. So, I mean, I think that clinicians shouldn't be so worried about pushing their patients into some discomfort or pain. And that's where it probably matters more. And you're like, well, how, how much pain? And so one is you ask your patient what they think is going on and what, what they're willing to tolerate. And you explain that it's kind of okay to poke into pain every now and then because it's good for them to start moving again. So they'll kind of tell you how much they're willing to do. Um, so let's say you've chosen to do a few exercises into pain, maybe 10 to 20 seconds. It, it, what you're trying to, and why we think that's safe is 
because we don't think we're doing any more damage. But the concern is that you get a big flare up the next day. Say someone has knee osteoarthritis, they're probably going to have to start walking with a little bit of discomfort. They always have knee pain, but we know that movement is good. So how we decide that's, that's not too much is you look at them and they don't look like they're in too much pain. They have to tell you that it's uncomfortable. And then now the rule of thumb, and I'm open to this changing, would be that 24 hours later, you know, on a test that you do or they can do on their own, they don't have any more pain. So that either they have the same amount of pain or less pain. And so the argument there is if they don't have more pain the next day, 24 hours later, you could say they're not sensitizing because they're not learning to have more pain, right? And, and, then, and then what I like to do is sort of follow that up over three to four weeks that maybe whatever their goals are, less pain, doing more, as long as they're improving, you know, and they're getting better, then it was the right idea to, to be poking into pain. But if nothing's changing in three or four or five weeks, then maybe poking the pain or that exercise or whatever you're working on needs to be tweaked in some way. So there's, there's the next day thing and then there's a long-term thing. Is this the right thing for them to be doing? Yeah. I mean, it, it seems so simple when you kind of put it that way, you know, and I think a lot of the topics that you broke down today, you've really been able to keep simple, which I, I appreciate, but that's the only I, way I can understand it. Yeah. Right. Well, so and that's my next question then, <laughs> you know, the way you explain things, especially with the pain science and the biomechanics and stuff has been so simple, but that probably wasn't the case at the beginning of your career. So could you maybe tell us about how things have changed for you as far as your explanations and as far as your ability to kind of translate this knowledge when educating? No, I, I swear I've always been simple. <laughs> I think <laughs> I, I remember uh, in Cairo College, like go, I was trying to write course notes for the class you know, get funding so the whole school would have course notes and not have to take them. And I was trying to write like an algorithm of a shoulder exam. Like if this is positive, think this. If this is negative, think this. And then as, as I was doing it all, because I was in Cairo school, and it, essentially your, your treatment, I, I realized our treatment for everything was the same. We do some exercises, we crack some joint, we rub, rub some shit. And then I was like, this is so simple. These, these assessment tools, you know, because I was still stuck in the mechanical model a lot then, even though I knew about the biopsychosocial, I didn't know how to use it. Uh, I'd have simple key messages of pain. Nothing was changing like what I was doing with my patients, right? So like with back manipulation, I remember citing myself. They, I, they'd want you to have like a, um, you're manipulating L3 and L4 because of whatever test that you determined. And I used to write, I'm manipulating the spine because there's pain. And the professor would be like, no, you can't do this. You have to tell me what segment and what you're trying to do. I need a reference. And I'd be like, no. And I, I would reference my own research papers. They're like, I can't be that specific. I mean, look what the research says. Yeah, exactly. And I quote myself because I was a jackass. Uh, <laughs> that's so arrogant. Um, so I was always, always that simple. And so what I'm, I'm into is like, how can you look at really complicated biomechanics? Well, actually, how I think this is what happens. You look through the complexity of the biomechanics research through the years, and most of it ends up leading to you doing really simple interventions, right? So the mechanical aspects of our treatment become simpler, right? So if, if you look at like the knee literature, we tried, we went crazy for a while. Like you got to turn on the glute med and you got to fire it in this order and you have to push the knee out. And then you have to do these knee exercises where you fire the V and delay the vastus lat, all these rules, right? 
And then when you look at the research studies, like from Kim Bennell, she would be a good person to read here. You look at all of the research papers, there's no difference, right? Mm -hmm. Closed chain, open chain, during a neuromuscular training program versus just a regular strengthening program. The most important thing is that you stress that knee and stress that hip. Right, And it's Loading. fantastic. And then the mo next, the next, well, actually, the even more important thing is that they do those exercises. That's perfect because that's that's so true. I mean, especially with, you know, adherence to just doing stuff. Because I know that you know, in general, I mean, what you kind of spoke to earlier about trying to make it in general, depending on what you're trying to do, of course, and then you've explained that well, and the patient's on the same page. You know, they have to adhere to that. Yeah, or the the idea there without adherence is. So one of my thoughts is if we can simplify the mechanics, we then get to develop skills in other areas where we don't feel as strong. So we don't have to keep taking biomechanical courses. We can take, I don't know, a motivational interviewing course or behavior change course or a course on resiliency or something like that. So, so we get better at doing the simple aspects of treatment. That's sort of the idea. Yeah, no, absolutely. And I think really getting to kind of what's the best way to kind of gauge someone's psychological irritability, you know, with certain things, like what are they open to, what are they not, and being able to kind of deliver a plan of care that's objective to what you find, but also kind of not going to make them defensive and not, and, you know, not poking them to the, to the avenue that they're not going to buy in. You know, it's yeah, like trying to, trying to find that balance. In, but Sometimes there's a little pushback where people oh, are saying it's all in my head. You know, that's, that's the risk that you're always worried about. And so it's like, the, the question is, how do you introduce the idea that pain is more than just like tissue? Uh, and to me, it's, and I, I got this from Mick Sullivan. He, he has a program called the Progressive Goal Attainment Program. It's excellent and it's been around for decades, but you start with, with simpler questions that introduce the idea that pain is more than damage would be like, when is your pain worse? Just things in general. Um, have there been any new and unmanageable stressors? Like trying to find things in, in your patient's story that illustrate that pain changes, you know, when there's other factors in their life that might be going on. And so you use the, their own story against them in a way to sort yeah. of illustrate that there's other things going on, like besides tissue. But then as soon as, and if, if that penny drops and they're open to that, then, then I, I use the cup analogy. Pain occurs when our cup overflows, and what's in the cup is all the stressors in your life. And so I kind of say, so I start with the idea like pain is more than just tissue. So what do you think, you know, might be going on? What's in your cup? And that's sometimes the homework. So what do you think is going on? What's in your cup? I give them some thoughts based on what, you know, they've told me, and I tell their story back to them. So then I have them, what am I missing? And then I say, well, what can we work on together here? Like, what do you want to work on? You know, and they might say, I don't know, you tell me, you're the physio. And I said, well, these are things that I think are relevant, I can help you with. But if there's other things you want to do that you think are useful, we can do those too. Or maybe you need to see somebody else as well, like to get, the, get some other skills, like other strategies. Sometimes even trying to get the patient just to realize the situation and realize that there's something more than biomechanics by just asking questions. So not really going at their belief, just asking questions that can kind of lead to them doubting aspects of what they thought. Yeah. And that's the idea that, that they kind of know the answer, right? And, and their belief might change with their own story. That's, that's, that's the idea there. You confront them with their own strengths or confront them with their own um, 
experience. Totally. And I know, Greg, as you said before, we're kind of all, we're all struggling. We're all always learning every single day. And since you kind of came out, it hasn't been too big of a thing in general, but you know, what aspects are you currently working on to kind of improve um, just general pain science, biomechanics education, other than keeping it really simple? Like, are there any new things other, apart from what you've talked about today that perhaps is unique that you're working on? Uh, yeah, you guys touched on it. It's the dosage. It's, it's, when, to, it's when to push into pain, uh, when to back off. Can we ever predict, like, how long do we keep sticking with a, with a treatment or with a, with a strategy? before we realize that it's wrong. Like it's, it's that, it's that type of stuff that, that I'm interested in. And then I always, I always keep researching. Like I always ask this question, like when is something specific needed? Right? Like when, when like thinking like, do I ever need to learn to address something exactly? You know, it could be like a disc herniation that's pressing on a nerve root. I know I can help some people with that, but there's always that point where, you know what, they might need surgery. They might need an injection or, someone has CRPS, can it just be my approach, which is graded activity, doing more, addressing their beliefs, slowly building them up. And then I'm always wondering, well, do they need like a specific intervention, like say to address their cortical brain body maps, right? Do they need like a graded motor imagery or with Adrian Lowe's stuff, um, I don't know it well at all, obviously, but the, discrimin the sensory discrimination uh, training that they do. You know, like that, that's like a specific intervention. I'm always wondering, like, do I need to do something specific or develop that, that, that skill? That's, that's what I work on too. I always ask that. That's how we start the course is with that question. Nice. No, I really like that. And, you know, I'm, I'm kind of curious here, Greg, you know, for those out there, of course, as well, that are looking to gain, of course, kind of more resources and such, apart from what you just mentioned before with that one resource and a couple others, what are some of the other top resources for people to kind of get better, you know, just about learning about pain and then treating people with persistent pain? The explain pain books are always great, you know, to, to read those and, and learn those. Uh, and then, and then to me, it's figuring out how to uh, slowly introduce that to your patients. And what I always recommend is just one, one idea per session, one key message that's relevant to the person. And I always think of like explaining pain or talking about pain. I think it's helpful in and of itself, but to me, it's meant to change their behavior or give them permission to do something. You know, that, that, that's the idea. Like, I think it's so important for people to when we're in pain to keep doing the things that they love in their life. And often they've just been told no and they can't. And you have to figure out why, do, why are they not willing to garden? Why are they not jumping on their trampoline with their kids? You know, why aren't they doing these things that they want to be doing? And that's where, that's where understanding pain helps the most to me. It's like that permission to figure things out for yourself and just start, you know, living again is the idea. I would always recommend the, uh, the CFT group, the cognitive functional therapy group. They have a, paper that just came out, Peter O'Sullivan, if you just spent months, you know, or a week or a couple of days reading their recent papers, I think you'd be, everyone would be a better clinician. Nice. No, very cool. And we'll definitely, for our listeners who are curious, those links will be kind of posted in the show notes. Um, so you guys have access to this along with a couple others that I've found too. I know um, there's been, I mean, especially with explained pain, Ben Cormack stuff. Well, Greg, that's been very, very helpful. And I think I've, I've definitely learned 
couple new things for sure from this interview today. And I'm sure our audience has as well. And, you know, we wanted to thank you again for coming on. And, you know, we like to ask this one question to each of our guests at the end of every episode, because we're always just curious on what everyone's response is to this question. And the question is, if you could change one aspect of physiotherapy or chiropractic education, which aspect would you change and how would you change it? Oh my, um, you know what? I don't even know. I, I, it, no, I'm totally stumped by this. But I was just thinking, I often hear that it's very hard to change um, the education program because uh, the, the schools need to teach to the test quite often. And so I'd wonder if there's a way to um, change the testing, just almost get rid of um, the board exams. And that you get, if, if you're going to credential schools, whoo, I don't need, listen, this is, this is amazing. Hold on. If you're, <laughs> if you're I'm on something here. Uh, if you're going to credential schools to educate, you know, physios and chiros, that should be enough board exams. You don't need them. That's what I would say. And, and that lets the schools have, uh, be up to date. So, so that you, you have the basics where you're not going to kill anyone and you're going to uh, make sure that everyone's safe, but forget board licensors, licensure, because they're jokes anyway. You just study old exams or memorize some crap, you know, just give all the responsibility to the schools. And then it lets, it lets the schools be like lean and mean machines where they can really uh, drive their education to keep it up to date rather than waiting for the board exam to uh, tell them what frequency of the, ultras the ultrasound is supposed to be. That's it right there. I just solved the problems. Maybe you just have like the licensing exams uh, for people coming from other schools. I don't know how that would work. Essentially, when you have these national board exams, you're saying you don't trust the schools because you're saying you have to t test them again, right? Because if, if the school has passed them and said, you've graduated, we think you're excellent. Now do this other test because the board, the, the national boards don't believe that you're good enough based on what we've said. Yeah. I don't know how that would work for sure, but I think it's definitely a very interesting point. And on the ideal side, I, I definitely could see pros and cons with it. And I think it would just be hard to implement. Well, Greg, one kind of more follow-up here for kind of our listeners who are kind of, if they ever have a question over you and they want to follow you on anything, where can people find you online and on social media, man? I'm on Twitter the most on social media. That's just, at Greg Lehman, because it's just such so pithy. It's good to get research out there. It's good to ask simple questions. So tw Twitter's if, if I'm on social media, that's, that's where it is. Well, Greg, I'm looking forward to actually meeting you in person down here when you come down next February. Is it be warm there? In February? I hope so. I hope so, man. I don't know. Yeah. Well, this is only my first summer. This is only my first winter in Virginia. So, uh -huh. and they said it was a regular, uh, irregular, excuse me, winter here. But, you know, I don't really know 100% what that means because I just came from the Midwest where there's a lot of snow and it's really, really cold there. Right. So, I, you know, I, I'm still trying to figure it out myself down here, but it has not been bad at all down here, nice. in, my, in my humble opinion. But yeah, I'm we want to move to, I want to move to Charlotte. I say we because that's like my wife and kids, but I want to. So we'd like to, we'd like to live down there for two years. I mean, I like it. I like Virginia for sure. I mean, yeah, it's definitely a lot of fun. There's definitely so many pros. The city is nice. Like it's not congested. It's easy to get around. Beautiful city, lots of recreational stuff, lots of history stuff. You're kind of a midway hub between DC, the beach and a couple other things. Yeah, totally. Well, Greg, again, thanks so much, man. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Access to healthcare is one of the largest issues facing both providers and patients as millions of people worldwide lack timely and affordable access to healthcare. Anywhere Healthcare 
A telehealth platform is a simple, low-cost option for providers and patients that eliminates the barriers to access to all kinds of healthcare. To find out more, check out anywhere.healthcare, which is available on our show notes. And if you use the code HET in all caps when you email to sign up, you'll save 25% off the total cost. Thank you for attending class today, and we hope that you learned something and gained value from the content. If you'd like to schedule office hours with us, feel free to add us on Twitter at HET Podcast, on Instagram, HET Podcast, on Facebook, the Healthcare Education Transformation Podcast, and the homepage, healthcareeducationtransformationpodcast.com. And for those of you following along in the syllabus, extra credit can be obtained by liking us, sharing us, and leaving a review. Let's continue our journey up Mount Educational Success as lifelong learners.